One, two, three, one, two, three. It's frozen or unfrozen? I'm moving my arms, yeah? Okay. Namaste to all of you. Tonight, in the evening of the satsang, I wanted to extend one of the themes which I have approached about three, four weeks ago, because I felt that um, <coughs> I didn't finish all of it. And I want specially to the, the theme about motivations. <coughs> Why do people have different forms of aspiration to do yoga, tantra, to include it in their lives? But I wanted to make a few musings to, to emit a few thoughts about connecting it with Kashmiri Shaivism because soon a new workshop of Kashmiri Shaivism is starting. And as some of you already know, Kashmiri Shaivism is highly peculiar in terms of spirituality. It is uh, peculiar in the extremely good and the extremely high meaning of the concept. But that automatically tells us something about the motivations. Which are the motivations associated to Kashmiri Shaivism, associated to these high parts of yoga and tantra? And how does it run in relationship to the rest of yoga? How does it run in relationship to other doctrines from India, like the Buddhist spirituality, the Vedantic spirituality, the classical yoga spirituality, all of them very strong lineages of spirituality. Obviously, in this particular lecture or satsang, I will not refer then to the fact that people may have motivations which are related to health and healing and the improvement of the quality of daily life and other such things. I have not given up on these motivations. I have included them in causes for human aspiration and motivation. But when we speak about Kashmiri Shaivism, they come very little into action. They are very little under debate because Kashmiri Shaivism, through its own nature, is a very spiritual form of yoga. It's a very spiritual part of yoga, and it goes to the supreme motivations in yoga. And uh, therefore, we are focusing mostly on the fourth category, the highest, but as you can see tonight, I thought a little bit about it. As you can see, I'm speaking freely. Um, it's, it's also the way that you can look about this motivation, especially when you talk about the spiritual motivation. You can think about it from other standpoints. You can use other criteria for differentiating it and finding other ways of uh, understanding this aspiration or motivation. Today, many people who study with Agama, both from the Agama lectures and speaking with their friends in Agama, 
and people who wish to join Agama and who have heard something about the spiritual and yogic treasures that we teach to the world, they know, either again from reading, from interaction with the others, from the grapevine, why not? They know that Kashmiri Shaivism is somehow the cherry on top of the cake. It is the yoga of Sahasrara. It is the crown chakra thing. It is the thing which you do after you've done six years of other things in Agama. Then finally, you focus full on on this one, which is aiming to bring together all the Hatha Yoga with Asanas, Pranayamas, Mudras, Bandhas, all the Laya Yoga with Mantras and Colors and Energies, and all the Kundalini Yoga with the strong practices for moving Kundalini. It tends to use all, everything which you have learned, and to kind of go into the Crown Chakra, into the highest consciousness, um, therefore focusing on the highest human goals. And uh, I have to say from the very beginning that because of a certain kind of uh, spiritual snobbishness, I hope the name is not too rough, but there is a sort of a snobbishness applied into spirituality. Some people would say, what the best thing that you've got? I would like to have a bit of that, please. And then, because this nature of the human being is known, and people hardly have the patience for six years to get the best of the best in Agama, then here in Agama we have ways of uh, teaching to people a little bit of that, both in the Kashmir Shaivism intro, in the Kashmir Shaivism practice, in some of our retreats where we insert some of these techniques, or in the Kashmir Shaivism study group, we, all, we have the possibility to teach to people, to give samples, to give something in which people practically, concretely can do some things and obtain results. But uh, on the other hand, it's always dubious if, uh, like, if you would be studying mathematics, first you would learn to count the numbers and you learn to do arithmetics, which means the four elementary operations. And then after that, you will start slowly going into algebra and later into analysis, into calculus and other such things. And eventually, you will get to reach the highest mathematics the real high-level mathematics, the high levels of algebra and calculus and all the rest. But then, you wouldn't start with that. If you would start with that, either there would be the possibility that you are a whiz kid, a genius, and then you would somehow comprehend it, or there would be the thing that I'm very ambitious to start with the highest of yoga, but actually I notice that some things don't fall in the right place. I personally, uh, and I think there is a yogic motivation for all these things, I'm very happy that when I started my excursion in spirituality in this lifetime, I started it with the normal metaphysics of yoga, 
with the chakras, with the classical yoga, with Vedantic mentality, with a theosophic interpretation of the Buddhist and Hindu spirituality, with some of the Buddhist points of view, and that even after a few years of doing yoga, as I went deeper and I started having more of the daily practice, more of the sadhana, more of the daily tapasya, I still was engrossed into the classical yoga, the Patanjali yoga, the Vedantic yoga, the examples of people like Ramakrishna and Yogananda and Mahananda Mai and Shivananda and the likes of them, which all of them express at least 90% the psychology of Vedanta, of classical Hinduism, of classical yoga. And even when I discovered Kashmiri Shaivism by interacting with one of my teachers, one of the people who taught me about Kashmiri Shaivism, even then in the beginning, I was incapable to understand it at the fully monistic, at the fully non-dualistic level where it is. I discovered that there were great mantras, that there were great techniques like the prana uchara or whatever, and they worked on sahasrara, and it was very fantastic to work on sahasrara, and very good, and the best, and in terms of engineering, it made sense, it was the highest chakra, it was the highest possible target of energy, and all that, many things which you know already, especially if you are part of the Agama lore, and therefore I was happy to find Kashmiri Shaivism, and it probably took me quite a while, it probably took me, it was a slow process which I evaluate that it might have taken at least two, three years before I moved completely into the values of Kashmiri Shaivism like the supreme yoga, the best of the yogas. And today, I still wonder if somebody would have picked me up from the street and proposed to teach me the spirituality according to Kashmiri Shaivism, if I would have been so motivated by it. Because the, when you study spirituality under other forms, I want to make a synthesis now because in one of the latest satsangs I spoke about motivations and in the last satsang I spoke about the path via pleasure, the pleasurable path in yoga, the pleasure, the, the path which fits very well with the tantric tradition and with even with Kashmiri Shaivistic tradition to such a great extent. And... Um, on the other hand, that's not how I'd started my spiritual quest and how I'd felt burning and motivated and moving into it. And again, I want to give a chance to the people who are in yoga, either you are already in Agama or you are attracted by these satsangs, and by our workshops and the curriculum of what we teach, uh, 
the syllabus of what we teach and you want to have the knowledge, the spiritual path which is given in Agama and um, because of that I want to give them a chance to follow some of the path which I had as well because paradoxically my path did not start with Kashmiri Shaivism. Indeed, Kashmiri Shaivism had been a cherry on top of the cake which came later in my life. It came at least a couple of years later and more. And again, even then, I was incapable to fully understand it or to have a living transition into it. And that's because the motivations... Here, obviously, when I speak about Kashmiri Shaivism, I speak only about the highest motivations. I don't speak about the wish to get paranormal powers. I don't speak about the wish to make your daily life cool. I don't speak about the wish to do healing through yoga or other physical miraculous processes through yoga. I am obviously talking about the motivation for spirituality. Even the motivation for spirituality is of different degrees. And when we look, for example, at the teachings of Jesus, who Jesus expressed some teachings for the normal citizens, like live morally, respect the Ten Commandments, but all the time, all the time, a man, a divine being like Jesus, is pushing the envelope. Because for him, normal life, he wishes that everybody would love God the same way he did love God. He wishes that everybody applies for perfection. He even says it explicitly in so many words. He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is. Yeah, but what do you do about the, you know, uh, let's be a bit politically incorrect, about all the retarded imbeciles, alcoholics, handicapped, idiots, materialists, bad people, egoistic, violent, and what do you do about, how do they aspire for perfection? You know, the best which a Buddha can do for those people is to tell them, stay away from bad karma. If you don't like pain, if you don't want to suffer, then at least be nice and stop producing bad karma because that bad karma will backfire on you and you, you get to be the loser in the end. You don't realize that you create karma and that this karma is 100% turning back to you and so on. So at least if you want a life with no trouble... Create no negative karma. This is not a spiritual teaching. This is a spiritual teaching for peasants. Again, I don't have anything against peasants because some peasants became enlightened beings. But I mean peasants in the meaning of boors, rednecks, primitives, the orangutans of spirituality. You know, the people who are really, really low life. You know, And you tell them be perfect as God in heaven is. You know, realistically, if you have a bit of grounding, what does it mean? 
No, because in the meaning of Kashmiri Shaivas, and even in the meaning of general Hindu spirituality, all of them have an Atman in their being. All of them, that Atman is the divine part. So theoretically, everybody has a piece of God in themselves, a fragment of God. So even if they are now really, really low and ugly, there is potentially a spark of light a spark of spirituality in everybody. And that's why you have to have compassion and love and, uh, you know, hope for the best that even the people who are at the lowest end of the scale, they somehow still could awaken to God and so on. And of course, when you look at how people have lived their lives and how they go to the graveyard when they die, you find out that 90% of the people who have been orangutans they died like orangutans, you know. They didn't. I mean, you can have the best hopes, but even in the day when they died, they were fucking baboons. They were animals. They were really ugly. Till a minute before they breathed their last breath out, you know. And then you say, what was the use of me transfiguring people so beautifully and hoping that everybody has some divine essence when reality, cold numbers show that most of them, they just wasted a perfectly good lifetime and they just scratched their ass and they have been flat. If we don't dare to say that they have devolved, at least we say they pretty much don't seem to have evolved at all or if they have evolved, they have raised on the scale of evolution with 1.5 millimeters, you know. It's like, it's better than nothing, but it's not much. And when you have aspirations in spirituality, you are thinking about much more. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is. Go to the kingdom of heaven and become a worthy inhabitant of the kingdom of heaven. What do you have to do to sit besides Milarepa and besides Rumi and besides, uh, I don't know, Basil the Great or Teresa of Avila? Or how do you have to be when you die? How clean, how pure, how enlightened do you have to be to deserve such company. And when people are realistic and they look at the people who die and how they die, you realize it's nice to have a lot of positive transfiguration and a lot of hopes because maybe that gives a little bit of encouragement to the world. It gives good energy to the world. And maybe we, if you would be more cynical and more skeptical, this planet would be even worse than what it is right now. But on the other hand, even with all this transfiguration and so on, things seem to move bloody slowly, bloody slowly. You know, like there are people and gazillions of them which seem to be hopeless. And their movement in spirituality, even if you don't want to make yourself the judge of it, you still can have an opinion, no? Like it's an opinion, like what would be if Walter would come to clean the floor in my house. I need a person, a cleaner, to do some cleaning in my house. And I'm about to hire Walter for it. 
And there are people who say, man, Walter is not even good to wash the floor in my house, in my bungalow. Walter is way below that. No? And this doesn't mean you are a judge, but it means that you have the right to an opinion. And therefore, when people put an opinion in it and they see what really is happening in this world, then you will see you have very serious questions about how optimistic was Jesus when he was speaking to a million people and telling them, be perfect as your Father in heaven is. Maybe Peter became so. Maybe Paul became so. Maybe John and maybe Andrew and others of his apostles, Thomas, maybe they became so. But it doesn't mean that if Jesus gave this to a million people, a million people honestly strived and made serious, serious progress on the way to perfection. And then, what's happening here? And I think Jesus, in his great lucidity, he defined it very beautifully because he said, okay, there are people who don't even consider the idea of God. Those people, they feel no motivation to do anything for any God because in their opinion, God probably doesn't even exist. And then to focus on this issue is like a waste of time. Interestingly enough, some of these people who don't believe in a God or in deities or whatever, you know, because the idea of God is very elastic, starting from thousands of years ago until today. Nevertheless, many of such people, they wanted morality. They wanted ethics. They wanted people to behave harmoniously to other people because they simply realized that the world would be a better place. If everybody has a gun and shoots at everybody, then we live in hell. Then we live in a world where people are running around trying to kill everybody. That's why the first commandment, both in yoga and in Judaism, was thou shall not kill. No, like, first of all, no, and people who work into ethics, they say, you know, I don't believe in God, but murder is punishable. We have police, we have something which punishes very severely murder. It's one of the biggest crimes, the biggest infringements of the law, is to murder somebody. You know, like, it's simply not allowed. It's on the list of no, no, murder is up there on the top. <laughs> Why? You don't believe in God. You don't believe that Patanjali said that God said Ahimsa is the way of life. And you don't believe that Moses was on Mount Sinai and he really met with God and God engraved on a slab of stone the words in Hebrew, of course, thou shall not kill the first of the Ten Commandments. And then why? And still people do that. So even out of the 20%, 25%, maybe 30% today of the people who are atheistic, probably even more now in Kali Yuga, probably even out of those people, some of them want morality. You know, like, don't do to other people what you don't like done unto yourself. If you don't like to be robbed, then don't rob other people. Don't commit theft. 
If you don't like to be sexually abused, then don't sexually abuse. If you don't like to be murdered, don't murder. And that has nothing to do with God. It is a sort of a primitive interpretation of the law of karma that somehow there, need, there seems to exist a balance in this universe. So for those 20%, their motivation is, I need to make my life good. I want to live in a city where there is not too much murder, not too much theft, not too much sexual crime, not too much this and that, simply because that city will be a pleasant city or village where I can live my life in peace and harmony. I'm looking for nice people to live my life together with them. But then, when people go into the field of religion, then here the motivations, according to Jesus, are triple. And people would say, no, there are people, Jesus would say, that there are people who fulfill the commandments of God out of fear. Like, if you piss off God, he can do nasty things. He destroyed differences, like the story of the Christian and Jewish Bible, and even the Islamic Quran, which comes after, it's like it's full of these things. In the name of God, Jewish prophets, Christian emperors, and uh, the prophet Muhammad himself, they have prayed to God that God should punish the evil people and help the God's people, the good people, and there has been war, slaughter, and all sorts of things, uh, sort of the, the Western equivalent of Karma Yoga, the Western equivalent of Bhagavad Gita, which means when Krishna says so, the bad guys have to die and the good guys have to prosper. And that's the jihad, that's the will of God, that's the Dharma, it's completely justified, it's completely innocent, it's completely okay and okay. And therefore, people are being told as the first tenet, don't piss off God. You blaspheme too much. You do this, you do that, you kill, you do injustice, God will get back to you. If God got back to the people from Sodom and Gomorrah, then for sure he can get back to you. And therefore, as you know, a great quality for a citizen in Christian Europe was expressed by the English syntax, God-fearing. Walter is a very God-fearing person, which means Walter will not kill you because he is afraid he will upset God. God. Walter will not steal money from you because he is afraid he will upset God. Walter will not lie to you. Walter will not have sex with your wife or whatever because he is upset he is afraid that he, he will upset God. And this fear was not considered to be a negative psychological thing. It was considered to be a highly beneficial psychological factor which prevents people from committing serious crimes. And Jesus said it very clearly. You do that because you are afraid of God. And he doesn't say it's bad. Ah, that's not good enough for me. He says there is better than that, but he says at least people do the will of God and that he is pleased with. 
And he says the people who do it out of fear, they are the slaves of God. Like God has a whip in his hand. And when you do something wrong, you always look with the corner of your eye to see if God is lifting the whip to give you, to crack you a good one over your back because you have pissed off God. Of course, you can say, but the law of karma is actually in... Yes, people didn't know so much metaphysics as to be able to make differences there. So, Jesus is perfectly aware that people do the will of God being afraid of God. When you read Kashmiri Shaivism, you will not find that. Kashmiri Shaivism is not made for people who do the law of God, who fulfill the law of God, because they are afraid of God. Never does the Shiva Sutra or the Abhinava Gupta himself or other authoritative sources in Kashmiri Shaivism, never do they speak about the fact that you should act out of fear. On the contrary, they always raise to the level like now I shall not be afraid of anything anymore. How can when you are God, how can you be afraid of God? Who worships and who is worshipped? And all that stuff, which some of you who have studied some Kashmiri Shaivism with me, you already know. And that's why, as I said, no. In, in the moment when you start studying spirituality, as I did, actually the first motivation is fear. For example, you are threatened by warned, if you prefer a better word, by Buddha and by the Hindu gurus, even in, by Krishna in Bhagavad Gita, you are warned by the fact that reincarnation is based on a polar force called karma, like a pendulum, which goes to the left, to the right, to the minus, to the plus. And this pendulum never stops. And basically, if you would be doing no efforts, you would be reincarnating, not a thousand times, not ten thousand times, you would be reincarnating ten million times, again and again and again and again and again and again, and there will be no way out of it because you'd never make, you'd never hit the middle. You would always your pendulum would be a little bit off to the left or a little bit off to the right. And basically then samsara or reincarnation becomes a boogeyman. It becomes a horror. It becomes the hamster cage. You run in a hamster cage and be warned, it never gets over. And therefore you are threatened with prison without end. You are threatened with karmic war, like as soon as you do a mistake, boom, it gets back to you. Karmic war, non-stop. There is no relief from it. And the early Hindu people, they have just asked for freedom. They have simply said, please, oh God, free me from the wheel of samsara. But Kashmiri Shaivism doesn't say that samsara is bad. So why should you be freed from it? Because Kashmiri Shaivism is not using the threat 
Kashmiri Shaivism is not using fear as an argument. But the Vedic tradition and the Buddhist tradition and many others, they use the threat because they know 90% of the population is made of baboons. And with the baboons, you have to show them the stick. There is a carrot, but they also need the stick. And they have to learn. And therefore people will say, no, I will be vegetarian. No, I will not kill animals. No, I will not do this. No, I will not do that. Mostly because of fear. Because of fear. But guess what? This fear is welcome if it prevents you from killing other people. Or sometimes people say, well, it's not enough. Because murders still happen. Yes, but in the societies which are lacking religion, this is much more. It happens much more. Where people have morality and ethics, there, there is something inside the human being, which we call conscience, our own conscience, which prevents us from doing too much of the bad things. Because there is a sense of decency and a little bit of a fear. You know, maybe there exists a cosmic law. Maybe there exists somebody up there. Maybe there exists a regulatory mechanism which I'm going to disturb if I step over the red line. And that's why people don't like to step over the red line too much. But the first motivation is fear. That's why I can say that I myself, when I started doing spirituality, I read Shivananda, I read Ramakrishna, I read Yogananda and so on, and they all of them implicitly somewhere, they were speaking the language of fear. If you do not make yourself a good moral, ethical person, and preferably spiritual, you will suffer a lot. You are going to bang your head against the walls thousands and millions of times. And not only this lifetime, but your next thousand lifetimes, they will be really painful, dark and shitty. That's a threat. Abhinavagupta will say, are you threatening me that my Lord Shiva will cast me into hell? I know, I love Shiva and Shiva loves me and that will never happen. But that's why he is Abhinavagupta. Because he is not moved by the stick, showing him the stick. So he knows he has to be a good boy. When I was young, my teachers, indirectly, through the teachings of spirituality and metaphysics, they showed me the stick in all seriousness. And they told me, you can choose to live your life like a dog, but you will have the karma of a dog. You can choose to live your life in ignorance, but Buddha said it very clearly. Ignorance is pain. In the matrix, one of the negative characters in the first matrix says, ignorance is bliss. That's only a demon can say such a thing. Because Buddha has said it very clearly. No, ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is the root of all pain. And therefore, in the beginning, you are motivated by it. What if I don't do anything, and in the end of this life, I am as stupid and as impure as I was in the beginning of this life? Or maybe I practice alcoholism, I practice financial greed and other things, 
And actually, in the end of this life, I will be worse than when I was seven years old. At least when I was seven years old, I was partly pure. But when I'm 77 years old, everybody talks about me and says, what an asshole. No? Then, was that a progress? No. And therefore, I, first of all, it starts with the fear as motivator. And then Jesus says there are people who are not afraid, smarter than that, and they always go for rewards. They know that if you fit into the Dharma of God, then God will be happy with you and treat you well, and you will get good karma, and occasionally you get a bit of grace, and occasionally there is a bonus for you here and there, and therefore you can actually separate from the 90% from the herd. The herd is called in India Pashu. That's why Shiva is Pashupati, the, herd, the herdsman, the shepherd. No? Because people are Pashu. And Pashu means animals without self-control. And that, for those animals, there is only the whip, the fear. But people who have passed that level, they go into the category which in India, in Indian Tantra, is called Vira. And the Vira are the people who are heroic. They know that sometimes you have to make a sacrifice to get something much better. They know that sometimes you have to do a tapas to get a prize, a boon. And especially the Asuras, the demons, are very good at it because they have a huge Manipura, and they can do self-discipline, and if there is a light in the end of the tunnel, then you just say, okay, I'm going for the light in the end of the tunnel. The baboons cannot refrain from their lamp chops, or Coca-Cola, or whatever, tobacco, or whatever they cannot refrain from, but the viras, at least for a while, or for a long while, they can they are people who do the will of God, says Jesus, because they await for rewards. And those are the merchants of God. They do business with God. It's possible to do business with God. You give something, you receive something. And because God is generous, God will always give you more than you have put in. So you never stand to lose any investment which you put with God is well preserved, well managed, well administered by God. And smart people who are not baboons anymore, they can live like this. A samurai can say, my life is full of obedience and I might be asked to die, but if I fulfill that, God will take me to heaven. Because Bushido, the path of the samurai, was a form of Buddhism. It was part of the Buddha. It was Buddhist Karma Yoga. Buddhist Manipura Chakra Yoga. Bushido meant a path to salvation. That's why it was called Do. It was a path. Bushido. Yeah? And it was a path to enlightenment. And that was like, your life is going to be hard. Sometimes very pleasant as well because you will be in the aristocratic class. 
It will be full of self-sacrifice. You might be asked even to die. But if you live your life as a perfect samurai, Buddha will take you to heaven. You have proven enough abnegation, noble feelings, surrender, generosity, whatever good Manipura virtues and Ajna discrimination you prove so that you deserve heaven. Jesus calls those people the merchants of God. That you understand the divine law. You are not 90% of the Pashus, of the baboons. You are smarter. Your karma is already better. And in being in that situation, then you are ready to do a bargain with God. You say, I understand the world in which I live. I understand the will of God and I respect it because when you respect it, you are better off. Even that, in Kashmiri Shaivism, you don't find much of that because besides some promises that you are going to live happily in Kashmir and you are going to live in peace and you are going to have no new roses and so on, there is not much Kashmiri Shaivism does not speak about the fact that you can develop Mahasiddhis and govern the universe and become powerful. When you read the Puranas and the general Hindu mythology, there you find a lot of stories of power. Power, power, people and demons and gods and so on who just wanted power, power, power. They wanted rewards from God. I want the Soma, the Amrita, the elixir of immortality, so I can live healthy and happily forever. No, that's a bargain. Jesus says that's better than being a slave. But again we see that even this, which is insufficient for Jesus, it is also insufficient for the Shiva Sutra, because basically it says you come, and try to practice the teachings of Vijnana Bhairava and the teachings of the Shiva Sutra just because you want some rewards from God. Kashmiri Shaivism is not. You can do Hatha Yoga and then like Ayengar or like Krishna Macharya, some of these monkey yogis from the 20th century. You will live over 90 years in good health. Which is relative, because Ayengar, when he was 90-something, they carried him on a stretcher. He could not walk anymore. So it's difficult to evaluate how you do yoga and at the age of 90. But okay, the age of 90 is in the black zone. The human DNA, we know, it has an average of around 80 years. The life, the average lifespan in the clean countries, in the countries which have good medical systems and hygiene and so on, still it hovers around 90 years. Men a little bit less than, 90, than 80 and women a little bit more than 80 because of the DNA differences. And thus, you know, you can say, but okay, if you say, maybe if I do yoga instead of 80 or 79, I will live 95. I'll all be it in the last five years, I will not be able to walk and I'll need to be in a wheelchair. 
which many people would say, let me evaluate that twice because I don't know if I want to live through that. No. Or Krishna Macharya, who apparently lived 101 or two or three years of age, same as Indra Devi, if I remember. No, the great Hatha yogis of the 20th century, not necessarily spiritual, but this monkey Hatha yogis, as we call them pejoratively sometimes, you know, then at least you can say, sure, you want that, you go to Iyengar and you learn that method and you do it religiously every day and you will add a number of years to your natural lifespan. But Kashmiri Shaivism again, it says you come to us for that. We don't have that. If you come to Jesus, Jesus says, man, I am not a doctor who extends the lives of people. As well, one of the apostles lived a hundred years. John, the apostle who wrote the last gospel, he lived long. All the others, they died relatively young by being assassinated, by being murdered in the same fashion almost in which Jesus had been murdered. And therefore, with Kashmiri Shaivis, because we study the motivations, we see that Kashmiri Shaivis, in an alternative way to Jesus, finds the same way. If you are practicing this because of fear, it's not good enough. It's not the spirit of it. If you are practicing this because you are trying to gain some bonus, to get some business from God, it's also not for this. You can do these things somewhere else as well. You do kundalini, you do other things which generate things in those categories. And then Jesus says there is a third category of people who fulfill the will of God just out of love. It's exactly like you say, if God wants that, I don't even care why he wants that. I love God so much that I want to kiss his footsteps. I want to do exactly what he wishes simply because I love him. That's the function of love. Love brings to the human beings devotion, humbleness. And Jesus says, if you love God, you don't need to be afraid of God and you don't need to try to take benefit, to do strike a bargain with God. You just love God. And you say, what if God doesn't give you anything? Tough luck. It's still love. Love is playing with you. When you love somebody, you know if they will love you back or if they will love you in the way in which you want them to love you or if they will love you uh, enough. No, you don't know. There is no guarantee. It's just a blind date. You know, love is a jump, a leap of faith. You just jump and see what's going to happen. But you believe in love. You trust in love. You say, I don't think love will ever cheat on me because I love love. And God is love. And I therefore, I love God. And thus, there is the third category. And when you look at Kashmiri Shaivis, you see very much that here we have a percentage of people who do the spiritual things simply because they feel it's the meaning of their lives. 
they feel that without it, without spirituality, without the spiritual quest, their lives would be meaningless, would be empty, would be, no, like, I want to be, Jesus would say, I'm in the flow of love of God. Maybe some of these mystics from India and Tibet, they look more at it from the jnana or viveka, discrimination or knowledge aspect, and they don't express it in the language of God, but they express it in the language of meaning, of, you know, like, I want to live meaningfully. I want things to be the right way, the perfect way, the knowledgeable way, whichever way you want, because, you know, in Jnana Yoga, in Bhakti Yoga, in Karma Yoga, in Raja Yoga, you have different motivations. I would like to say it very clearly. I think for myself, when I was young, as I was coming from an environment which was, to a large extent, impure, like I was living in a communist state, and my family was not having any connection with religion or spirituality, then my motivations were not like, oh, I am the reincarnation of Abhinava Gupta, and I want to live the perfect life simply because I am Shiva, and I want to be with Shiva. And when I read Shivananda, and when I read Ramakrishna, and when I read Yogananda, I found the stick and the carrot, a lot of it, because they told me that if I don't enlighten myself, I'm going to reincarnate again forever and ever. They told me that reincarnation in samsara is painful and full of confusion, that I will have good days, but according to the laws of karma, I will also have very bad days. And thus, in the beginning, if somebody would have said, look, there is something very sattvic, it's just your nature, you are not suspecting that your nature is the nature of Shiva, and maybe you are curious to discover it. You often heard me expressing negative attitudes towards some forms of psychology chaotically mixed into spirituality. And I want to tell you that the more the years are passing in my life, I can see how true that is. Because whenever I study the lives of the great mystics and saints from religions and from yoga, I find that many of them were still quite neurotic. That means many people, they were, you know, they felt, I don't fit in the world. The world is boring. It's ugly. It's tiresome. Either I had some traumatic events, or I've seen those traumatic events in the lives of others, or I simply fit like a misfit, and then I would like to do something else. But there is no something else. Everybody around me gets married, has kids, makes some money, then they get old, and then they die. And if in the morning they get up and make 108 Lakshmi mantras, 
that means for them that they are spiritual. You know, and it's like, okay, you know, that then you are also spiritual. But in terms of the Vedic tradition, that's very clear. Because Dharma is one thing and Moksha is another thing. People who fulfill superficial religious duties, such as staying vegetarian, that's in Hinduism, of course, in other religions it's not required. And other such things, not, not touching alcohol like in Buddhism or something like this, they are cultivating Dharma, the third leg, the leg of religion. But moksha, the actual freedom, the emancipation, is not touched by that. And that's why, as I said, you have, you have uh, heard, or heard me directly, or heard from other people, that I sometimes condemn the collusion of psychology. That's why sometimes we call it psychopupu in Agama here, to kind of put it down in a ridiculous way. Because we notice that people like Francis of Assisi, people like Teresa of Avila, people like Rumi, people like Milarepa, and people like Ramakrishna, all of them were freaks. Freaks, unadaptables, people who could not be comfortable in the world. If you'd keep those people in the world, most of them would have committed suicide by the age of 40 already, simply because they did not feel comfortable in the world. Until today, we have people, and we have such people in Agama, many. No, If you take them to a party... After half an hour, they start feeling uncomfortable in the party. They don't stay, oh, let's stay until 3 o'clock in the morning. Because it's, it's like, okay, we finish the food, we go home. You know, like there is not much to do. in a Oh, you have a swimming pool? Good. Then I will also swim for 30 minutes. But after I swim for 30 minutes, I definitely go home. Because for me, the party has an aspect which is utilitarian. I get food, I get to swim, and for the rest, all the rest of the party sucks. I don't feel comfortable. I don't bond with people. I don't connect with people. When we, I had a lunch yesterday with Walter, and we talked about the different theories about reincarnation. And we stayed in a cafe until one o'clock in the night, because it was so thrilling to talk about the laws of God and about metaphysics. And to inv- but in a party, you don't get to do that. And therefore, it gets boring. Oh, I react to people, and then Walter told, tells me, you know, the national football team in my country has just been accepted to the World Cup. Like, why do I have to give a shit about the football team in your country? Why do I care about it or any other football team in any country on this planet when it's a bunch of overpaid illiterates, semi-illiterate imbeciles get billions of dollars just because they can kick a piece of leather inflated with air, just because they are clowns, they they are Cirque du Soleil acrobats, and they can handle a ball, a football, 
and because of that they get to be paid hundreds of millions of dollars, I find it revolting. I think, you know, if they would all be hit by the lightning in this second, all of them in the same second, all the 100,000 football players and trainers and coaches and so on, would all of them be hit this second by a lightning bolt and die, I think this planet would be a happier place tomorrow. I think it would be a bonus if they would disappear off the surface of the earth. You know? And thus, what I'm trying to tell you, I divagated, I just am trying to tell you that some people don't feel comfortable in social events. They feel that it's artificial, awkward, that there is a lot of hypocrisy, that there is a lot of political correctness, that you have to smile when you don't feel like smiling, actually, that you do this, you know, hi, how are you today? No? And people don't even wait for you to tell them. You know, I have witnessed in a Canadian post office, an old man was coming there, and the post lady said, hi, sir, you know, he was the next in queue, and he said, hi, sir, how are you today? And he said, pretty rotten, really. She was completely blocked. Like, if you would have said, nice, good, Okay, I smile, you smile, we did our social duty, you are okay, I am okay, we both are hypocrites because both of us have problems at home, you know, and so on, but then we pretend we are okay. And if I'm telling you, no, I'm fucked up and I would like to smash your head off, you know, then suddenly I'm politically incorrect, you know, and I'm not a good person anymore, and everything you know, So there are, please remember, I have studied it a lot. Most of the spiritual people became spiritual because they wanted to escape from a world which they perceived as painful, ugly, dirty, and in which they felt they did not fit. Even Buddha, when he saw old people, ill people, sick people, and dead corpses, he got such a paranoia that he ran away in the forest when he realized how life is going to be as well for him. No, Then he didn't like, he felt, what the fuck am I doing here? I'm a stupid prince living in ignorance and not getting anything out of anything. You know, He ran away. He became paranoid. So you can say that Buddha was neurotic. Many people have seen sick people dead people, old people, and they didn't think about packing their gear and going in the jungle because this world sucks. Look what's happening. You live a life, you shine, you are a teenager, you are sparkling, you are young, you have sexual energy, you may be beautiful or handsome or something, and then inevitably when you are 70 years old, when you sit down on a chair, you release a fart unwillingly because the muscles of your anus have gone to the dogs, you know, and if you don't run quickly to the toilet, you might piss in your underwear and other shitty things like this, you know, and is that happy? Like even Patanjali probably was pissing in his lungis or whatever he was wearing there in India, in his dhoti, you know, when he was 70, and because we don't know if he did tons of hatha yoga and mudras and bandhas, and that he was not a hatha yogi, you know. And therefore, you know, f- so people are not happy about this. And that's why, please remember, I can tell you this authoritatively, 
that most people who get into spirituality, they get into spirituality because they are displeased. They are unhappy. They are neurotic about something. It's very seldom that a boy like Ramakrishna, he simply says, I'm born for this. This is who I am. I can't stop myself from being this. I sing for God. I want to learn yoga. I want to do this. I want, you know, and there is nothing else which I would rather do. But remember, even Ramakrishna was a big time weirdo when you compared him with everybody to the point where he asked by Ravi Brahmani if he was crazy. He thought that he was crazy because he didn't have a guru to tell him nonsense, young man. This is not madness. This is the greatest treasure in the universe. It's called aspiration. You are spiritual. So Ramakrishna, as well as many others, they want neurotic. If you want to do psychology, to take these neuroses out of them, and say, come on, man, I can teach you why we can do 20 psychological sessions with hypnotherapy, with NLP, with gestalt, with... uh, parts therapy with a million forms of psychotherapy and you are going to feel comfortable and good. The first conclusion if you feel comfortable and good is that for 90% of the people there is no need for spirituality anymore. There are such studies, like for example, they consider that in Europe, the country where people are most happy according to some ridiculous criteria, in my opinion, you know, like really Marxistic, materialistic criteria. And when they measure the quotient of happiness, the most happy people in Europe for several years in a row, they have been the Danish people, Denmark. It's also the country which has the largest number of atheistic people. Estonians, Danes, and so on, they are top in atheism. The more happy you are, the less you think about pleasing a God, and you can say, look how happy I am, God probably doesn't even exist. Then it's very easy to inflate your ego and to feel comfortable in your own ego, and you don't have personality conflicts, you know, and otherwise you would say, why am I poor all the time and I cannot rub two pennies together? Why can I not go to a party and be happy doing superficial things like everybody else does in a party, but they are happy with it, I'm getting tired, sick and tired of it. Why can I not be happy? Why can I not get enough sex? Most people are going clubbing, they have one night stands, they do whatever they do, you know, I don't manage. Somehow women, when they look into my eyes, they think I'm a serial killer and they run away. They are afraid of me and I'm getting pussy once every cycle of Saturn, you know, every, or every cycle of Jupiter. To be, I had a pussy this year, and I had another pussy 12 years ago. You know, it's like, you know, and therefore, when people are like that, then they think about God as a solution. They are afraid of the punishment of God because they already feel pain, and they try to strike a bargain with God, Like, if I am good, God will give me 72 virgin girls when I die. Like in the Islamic, in some Islamic beliefs. And therefore, that's also a bargain. You know, you behave now, and then we give you 72 beautiful, horny, Arabic 
girls, all virgin and pure, who just wait to serve you in the most divine ways you can imagine. This is neurosis. And that's why I actually know for a fact that I myself and many other people in spirituality, we started spirituality as a compensation. We didn't know God so as to be able to love God. How can you love something which you don't even know and about which there are so many contradictory descriptions? God, you can be afraid of God because you hear that he has a long white beard and he gets angry quite often and then you don't want to piss off that one because he is really powerful and he has a very heavy hand. When he punishes, he really punishes. If I can discover a benefit, like I do good karma, I receive good karma, then it's even better. I can find an ecological way to live in this universe by minimizing my pain and maximizing my gains. But this thing, be perfect, because your Father in heaven, as your Father in heaven is, or you should do the will of God out of pure love, and then you are the children of God, the sons of God, Jesus calls them. Like there is just a spontaneous, maybe Abhinavagupta was such a high spirit, Maybe he was even an avatar, and then he was directly related to the heavenly. And for him, there was no need for any new roses to run away from something so as to discover God. But for most of the other people, they were running away from something. Remember, read the life of Rumi. Rumi was running away from different miseries of life. Read the life of Francis of Assisi. Francis of Assisi was running away from murder, killing, the greed of his own father and of business people and all that. Teresa of Avila was running away. Ramakrishna was running away. Milarepa was running away from the karma of being a heavy-duty murderer in his very lifetime. And the list could continue endlessly. Even Peter and Paul they were running away from the fact that they behaved like assholes to Jesus. And then Jesus mysteriously forgave them and blessed them. And now they felt such a duty of gratitude, such an enormous gratitude, that they wanted to pay their duties. They wanted to pay their debts. And thus, in spirituality, because we think often about Kashmiri Shaivism. Kashmiri Shaivism is the highest thing which Agama will offer. And here in Agama, Kashmiri Shaivism, it is done the full monte, the full on. Maybe those of you who do just the KS intro, a two-week workshop, maybe you don't realize. But if you go deeper on that in the Kashmir Shaivism study group and in the Kashmir Shaivism advanced teachings which come later in the curriculum, then you will see that nothing compares to the Kashmiri Shaivism. But the motivation cannot be neurotic because people don't do Kashmiri Shaivism to stay away from the fear of God. 
because you are that God, your consciousness is, and people don't do Kashmiri Shaivism to get power or cities or other tapasya type of rewards because that's not part of the Kashmiri Shaivism either. And therefore in Kashmiri Shaivism, you do Kashmiri Shaivism to discover who you truly are, which is much, much bigger than promised. Oh, you truly are Atman, who is of an immortal nature, and this and that, and that's Vedanta, simple Vedanta, you know. Oh, my nature is the nature of Atman, and therefore I have an immortal soul, we can put it in that way. In Kashmiri Shaivism, those who heard about it, you know, it's much, much more than that. The stakes are raised to a level which is almost scary about who you are. But in the beginning, people don't feel. If people are too happy, a happy person who is not neurotic, not feels like he or she is a failure, doesn't feel like he or she has done big mistakes or has fucked up some serious things in life, And then such a person says, every day I find myself meditating into the Shiva consciousness, four hours, five hours. I'm absorbed all the... I would do that from morning till evening if the administrative aspects of life would allow me that. Such people are the sattvic people, the third category, which Ramakrishna has called divya, not pashu, the tamasic ones, not vira, the rajasic ones who want to gain something, but the sattvic ones who do it because it's their own nature. It's their own nature. Abhinavagupta says when you receive the grace, it's not the matter that you do an effort or something. The grace is exactly what you have received. Your own nature is the grace. Because the grace you will not feel it like an external, artificial intervention in your sometimes, but most of the time not. It's intrinsical. It comes from Shiva, and if it comes from Shiva, it comes from you. It comes from the I am. The answer to the question is he that asked the question. The answer is the subject. You can never treat Shiva like Shiva is out there and he gave me a grace then you don't know who Shiva is. No, Shiva is inside the subject, is the subject, the supreme subject. And that's why what I'm trying to say here, it is like this. With Kashmiri Shaivas, we give to people the highest sattvic motivation. But some people are not at that level. And that's why I myself... And I didn't do it consciously. I just had the grace that I was taken gradually there. And for some of you, it might be a conscious decision. In the beginning, you think in the terms of Vedanta. In the beginning, you think in the terms of Paramahamsa Yogananda when he describes the evolution of the soul through the universe. In the beginning, you can think in the terms of Buddha who tells you that life in this world is called samsara and it sucks and it's painful, and it's ignorant, 
and it takes a long time, and it has a lot of flaws, and the only alternative to it is nirvana, which is eternal, perfect, absolute, and the place of happiness. Then normally, every intelligent person who is not a masochist is running away from pain and darkness, and it's running towards knowledge and towards the light. And thus, please remember, the first two motivations, the tamasic one when you are the slave of God, and the rajasic one when you are the businessman or businesswoman of God, they are dualistic. There you are afraid of the stick and you get a carrot. And that motivates you. I'm telling you that when I was doing yoga, being young in this motivation, I was very motivated. I was doing yoga, you know, yes, being afraid of too many reincarnations. And and then I was reading Tibetan yogis. And in the yoga of the disciple, he said the ten necessary things. And one of the ten necessary things was you should feel such a fear of future incarnations and such an abhorrence of samsara, exactly like a wild animal that wishes to drink fresh water from a spring but is afraid to be eaten or caught or wounded by other animals or by human beings. That sounds very ugly, Neurotic, you know, like you should be simply hating the fact that you can have one more life. No. Today, my vision about this has modified because of Kashmiri Shaivism. Because Kashmiri Shaivism brings you to a state of consciousness where you can even transcend those teachings of Gautama Buddha or of classical Vedanta. And still, if people ask me today, Maybe they don't know exactly who I am, what I have done. I don't like to beat the drum too much about this and so on. I try to behave in a friendly and normal way to most people in my life because that's my temperament, that's my character. And people are telling me, if you were to be born again in the next life, what would you like to be? And my first reaction is coming from 40 years ago, not from Kashmiri Shaivas. My first reaction is like, Slap your own lips, you know. Stop talking rubbish, you know. I hope your words never fulfill because I don't want to have one more. It would be the curse of the curses if I... Of course, then you can say, but what about Dalai Lama? What about karma? Why do they keep coming back? It's like, yes, sure. Then you come up with compassion. You come up with the other things. And you come up with the great ideals of Bhava Samadhi, of uh, the great spiritual fulfillment as in Mahayana Buddhism, as in Kashmiri Shaivism and the others. But still, because the first two, three, four years in my life I was conditioned by Shivananda and Ramakrishna and Tibetan Yoga and Yogananda and all the likes of them, that was my motivation. I was motivated by fear, by neuroses, by being a misfit, by, you know, I told this to somebody, you know, a guy who was uh, a bit of a pervert in some ways, I will not go into details, but a very smart guy, you know, and he said, ah, so then for you this yoga is a sort of revenge of the nerds, 
making an allusion to a very well-known movie from the 1980s and 90s, which is called exactly that, The Revenge of the Nerds, and which is a silly comedy, a very cheesy comedy. And, uh, you know, like the nerds, and it sounds like that, because even Rumi, in his poetry, he says, yesterday, everybody was making fun of me, like, look at Rumi, that loser. And today, I found God, and you can all kiss my ass. Now you are sorry that you are not me. Isn't this the revenge of a person who until yesterday was looked upon as a loser, as a freak? So yes, for Ramakrishna, if he wouldn't have done yoga, he would have been a freak. Maybe he would have gone to a mental hospital for being really, really out of balance. But his guru said, hey, in your case, this is not madness. This is a madness which has turned into the best of the best, because out of frustration, or God knows what it was, it is said that Ramakrishna, his father died when he was seven years old. And then Ramakrishna became very lonely, because probably he loved his father, he had something. And then he started studying yoga, talking to sadhus, gurus. He became interested in something, but of course it's because a psychologist would say, let's do him some nice sessions to alleviate the pain of losing his father. God, behave it. Get out. Go hang yourself. Because we, then we don't have Ramakrishna anymore. You make him psychologically healthy, then he doesn't want to go to God as a compensation. Therefore, Ramakrishna has to be neurotic. Because in the beginning, how else will he know that he is doing something good? He has to have a stick and a carrot in the beginning. And then after he did yoga 10 years, then he says, I discovered some things I cannot stop anymore. I discovered such amazing things. It's my second nature. This is what I was meant to be. No, but in the beginning, he was sad because his daddy had died. And thus, I'm telling you all these things to understand that the first two types of motivation, the tamasic one and the rajasic one, they involve a yin and a yang. They involve duality. There is an enemy and there is a friend. Matter and the devil are your enemy. And if they get you, they will torture you forever. And spirit and God are your best friend and if you find spirit, and if you find God, then you will go in the kingdom of heaven, and you will live there forever, in bliss, in light, in knowledge. Samsara sucks, and nirvana is the best thing which could happen to you. That's the same way Patanjali describes yoga, in the same way Vedanta says the whole world is maya, and you are lost in Maya like a donkey in the fog, and you can't find your way, and you knock your head and fall into ravines and break your legs, and you are suffering in Maya, and then Brahman is the light beyond Maya, the spirituality which is waiting for you beyond Maya. And thus, in the beginning, motivation 
is having a polarity and it's based on a neurosis. It's based on a dissatisfaction. Like my life was not good enough. I was a loser. I was a nerd. I was a freak. I was a murderer. I was a greedy person. I was a sinner. I was a Satanist. I was whatever I was. And now like Milarepa and like the repentant son, I'm running back to the light with all my power, with all my energy. In the beginning, this is very useful because how many people did we find? How many people? I have had students. I've never tried to calculate how many because it would be like I'm trying to compete in some way and I'm not a competitive person. I don't feel that I want to compete. But if I had at least a thousand new students every year until a couple of years ago, three, four years ago, and I taught this for 20 years or more, then definitely I have taught yoga to more than 20,000 people in my life. To some of them, beginner stages. To some of them, I'm still teaching yoga nowadays in advanced stages. And how many people did I have seen who came? They were not losers. They were not frustrated. They were not neurotic. They were not weirdos. They were not freaks. They were not afraid of something. They were not trying to strike a bargain with God. They were not trying to cheat their way to God or something. And who simply, as Jesus says, they were the sons of God. They did everything out of an incomprehensible love which was coming from their heart. And they simply said, I don't know, I can't stop. This is what, as soon as I heard this, this was the thing for me. Many people say, oh, as soon as I heard about yoga, I liked it. But it's because it was compensating something. It was giving you an alternative. It was going you a revenge possibility. But how many people have done it just like this? I heard about the will of God. And I felt that there is nothing better than living in the Dharma. Dharma was divine, is divine, natural. No, the Sahaja, Samadhi, the natural Samadhi. To be in the natural state. Because that's the natural state if you are like Jesus. When they ask Jesus, oh, we looked for you. He was 12 years old and he ran to the synagogue. And they ask him, we look for you like, you know, they were trying to say, where the fuck did you go? We were scared, you know. And he said, where could I be if not in the house of my father? Like he was a 12-year-old kid. And he said, where did you expect to find a person like me if not in the house of my father? That's why, because there is love for Jesus who was an avatara. There was no need of new roses. We don't know if Jesus as a young man was a loser, a weirdo, a freak, if he was afraid of girls and of sex, if he was, couldn't rub two pennies together, if his father and mother beat the shit out of him when he was a kid and he was neurotic. We don't know. Maybe yes, maybe not. But it is seen from the outcome of it that Jesus was a natural for him, this was the Sahaja Samadhi. It 
was the natural state to be with your father, to be focused on your father, to be only with your father. That is natural. There is this, it reminds me of this beautiful quote from Plotinus, a Neoplatonic philosopher, which is in your papers, in one of the bright thoughts, which says to be only with him. That is the highest uh, joy and so on. And there is a, quite a text where he elaborates on this. What, what do people... But that was a very pure person. And even for that, such a person, I contemplate if they were like this when they were 18 years old and they started their spirituality. I tell you from experience, I have encountered men and women very gifted for spirituality. Obviously, people who had done devotion, meditation, spirituality in previous lifetimes, and who when they came and heard about yoga, about the spiritual parts of yoga, they were inflamed. A flame went into their heart, and they felt, this is what I do. This is, I don't know how I didn't realize until now, this is me. Yeah? So I have encountered sattvic people who were of this divya nature, like they had a sort of a natural inclination towards sattva and towards divinity and towards the absolute. And who would read Plotinus and would say, indeed, to be with him, to be only with him. Either you call him Jesus or Father or Allah or Brahman or Shiva or whatever, the heaven, as the Mongols called it, the blue heaven, it doesn't matter, it's all symbolic names in the end, then that's where I want to be. But otherwise, for many other people, it has been the result of a tamasic and rajasic maturation process in which because of frustrations, because of fears, because of greed, because of other things, these people thought that spirituality would be good for them. And then as they went deeper into spirituality, their soul awakened, they started feeling the resonance with the great things, with the divine things, And then all their other things, like I was afraid of this, I was frustrated about that, I was uh, afraid or whatever, I was trying to, I was greedy to get that, they become less and less and less until they vanish. And then the spiritual practice either becomes, it becomes natural, it becomes like second nature. Well, Kashmiri Shaivism directly is for these kinds of people. If not, Kashmiri Shaivism teachings here in Agama, especially the beginner ones, the intro, and they will show you how wonderful this is. And still, you will be motivated by the stick and the carrot, the tamasic aspiration and the rajasic aspiration, which still is with every one of us along our spiritual path. And in time, then we reach 
you saw for Abhinava Gupta in the first poem he is so happy that he saw Bhairava he, stay, he had his first state of Samadhi and in his last poem which is written maybe 30 years later he is like completely relaxed he is a total philosopher he says who worships whom no, you cannot say that Shiva worships Shiva and the worship itself is Shiva also like it makes no sense. No? He says who wants to get liberated and from what? When the samsara is shakti, who is the same as Shiva, and therefore samsara is nirvana and nirvana is samsara. And therefore, how can you be afraid? Then if you are not afraid, then how can you be a prisoner? And if you are not a prisoner, then what the fuck is this fairy tale which says that people are going to reach liberation? Liberation from what? No? I remember there were people, once some people who were very arrogant coming from a certain direction of spirituality, and one of them came to me and said, when are you going to get liberated, do you think? It was after I had wonderful states of samadhi and so on and so on. And I was looking, I didn't know, shall I start a metaphysical explanation like you're talking nonsense, you didn't read Abhinava Gupta or something? Or, and I said, what, liberated from my worries or what, you know? I turned it into a joke. Probably they thought I was an idiot and I didn't understand the greatness of their question, you know? But I was trying to put down their question to show how ridiculous it was, you know? Because, like, I'm not chased by the rabid dog which says, get liberated, get liberated. Not anymore. Because that very idea, at a certain level of consciousness, it simply makes no sense. And Apinava Gupta has pointed at it beautifully. That's why I wanted to show that even in Kashmiri Shaivism, you hear about the divine consciousness, you hear about Shiva and Shakti, you hear, you hear about the metaphysics of this universe. And even there, you have to verify very clearly your motivations. I'm watching this Indian series about Shiva, and it's a complete mix-up, because India is so mixed up. It's a mixture of some places where Shiva is the lord of the universe. It's some places where Shiva is like almost an idiot, being cheated in some elementary things and so on. It's the language of the Puranas. No? And I'm looking at it and I can see that they speak for everybody's motivation. They have to address the 90% of the people who are Pashus. And they have to describe Shiva, Yoga, God, spirituality from the standpoint of a Pashu mentality. And that is you have to give them fear. You have to scare the hell out of them. And then there is, I can see that they describe spirituality for people who want to obtain benefits, growth, bonuses, an exalted position, to be like a rishi, to be like whoever, Naray, Narayan or Dadichi or whoever was there, you know. And they speak to the Rajasic, Viras. And then there is also this natural devotion emanating from Parvati, from Ganesha, perhaps partly from Nandi, his main devotee and others, 
which is like, you know, whatever happens, even if you send me to hell, I still love you, I still am one with you. It makes no difference whatsoever. And thus, in this way, in Kashmiri Shaivism, we have chosen out of the four motivations that I described the other week, we chose the spiritual motivation. But even this spiritual motivation can come because of tamasic, rajasic, or sattvic motivations. And I wanted to call your attention on the fact that you should not fight against that. Because when your state of spiritual realization sees, achieves that, then you will automatically go into the next type of aspiration, into the next type of motivation. That's why I want to extract from my own life to say that whenever you read Yogananda or Shivananda or Ramakrishna or the likes of them, and whenever you feel threatened or whenever you feel tempted with some gifts, you should not refuse those. You should endorse those. Only when your state of consciousness allows you, there is a saint, a Christian saint, I forgot his other name, because he's called John something. It's one of the Johns, but obviously because John is a very frequent name, there have been at least 10 or 20 Christian saints called John. And one of them is John the Baptist before Jesus, and the other one of them is called John the Apostle, uh, being the Apostle of Christ. And there have been other Johns, John Chrysostomus, the one with the golden mouth who wrote the Christian Mass, and others. And this one, this John that I'm talking about, I can find his name, of course, because I know the reference, is one of the fathers of the desert. And he lived somewhere in the 6th, 7th century in Egypt or Sinai. One in one of those parts of the world, in the Egyptian desert or in the Sinai desert. You know? And then somebody, this guy was so advanced in his practice that he was basically in a state of samadhi pretty much all the time. But of course, he was living a super extreme lifestyle in which he lived in the wilderness and he was in non-stop prayer and all that. And somebody asked him if he is afraid of God. And this John something, whatever his name was, this John, he told him very naturally, now I am no longer afraid of God because I love God. It was a very bold statement. He wouldn't have made it to the world at large. He just made it in front of an intimate person who knew him just to inspire that person, just to show to that person that it was possible not to brag about himself. It was a lesson which he was giving. You know? And basically, he illustrated through that the sattvic type of aspiration where there is no fear. Oh, if you don't do your daily prayer or meditation, God will punish you. If you don't do your daily meditation or prayer, you will never open your third eye and you will never see the previous lives and the next lives and all that. There is no punishment. There is no light in the end of the tunnel or treasure at the foot of the rainbow. Like there is no reward. And still, you are full on. And you are full on 
simply because of this sahaja state that there is no need for any reward, there is no need for any threat, there is just the love for God. So in Kashmiri Shaivism, this comes first, but that makes Kashmiri Shaivism so difficult. Because how many people are like that in the beginning? Francis of Assisi was not like that. Perhaps even Ramakrishna was not like that. Milarepa was definitely not like that. Ramana Maharishi was not like that. Yogananda was not like that to a large extent. And others. Therefore, uh, I wanted, I felt inspired to talk to you, to make a comparison and to show that Kashmiri Shaivism, that's why we say it can be sometimes dangerous. Because it doesn't give you the tamasic fear from the anger of God. It doesn't give you the rajasic motivation to get something from God. And then if you don't have the sattvic love for God already, you are lost. I know personally a number of people who think they are in Kashmiri Shaivism and they practice nothing. Nothing. I talked once about Kashmiri Shaivism to a number of people in my own apartment while being in Romania and one year later, one of them, a wild Sagittarius man, he had bought himself horses, he became a horse breeder, he was smoking, he was drinking and he said, because I I smoke, it means that Shiva is smoking with me through me, because I'm Shiva. No? He just put it the other way around. He put the cart in front of the horses. He didn't realize that the soul is made in the image of Shiva. He thought that Shiva would be made in the image of the soul, which was a grave misunderstanding. I myself, teaching Kashmiri Shaivism, I have put some people on a wrong path, no? simply because the meeting was too short, and I didn't have time to give enough instruction, profound instruction for people to understand. That's why for some of you, Kashmiri Shaivism is a transitional phase because you still have to read a lot of Yogananda, Shivananda, Ramakrishna and the likes of them to understand all the facets of spiritual practice and all the facets of the human aspiration Because aspiration contains also the stick and the carrot, which is pushing us into the pure spirituality. I hope thinking about these things has uh, brought you some more clarity tonight, and it will make you approach the Kashmiri Shaivism with the sattvic reverence which it deserves. Thank you all for joining here tonight. And I hope to see you either in Kashmiri Shaivism or other activities here in Agama.